we're at the point in the corduroy story where corduroy might likely have said to himself, well, this is another fine mess you've gotten me into. Anyone ever say that in their lives? Usually to ourselves, right? They might have been his words if he could have spoken. The bear is here. He's left home, traveled to worlds unknown, kind of like the prodigal son story, if you will, tries to fix the problem of the missing button himself, right? He's grabbing the button off the mattress so he'll be able to fix it himself. And then life throws him a curveball and he's sitting there lost. We asked the question last week, who directs my path? Likely the kind of question Corduroy might have asked here. The kind of question many of us might have asked ourselves this very past week. Why am I here? Why did I do that? Where am I anyway? And, and what do I do next? Can anyone deliver me from the mess I have made? This another fine mess you've gotten me into is something we should usually say to the person looking at us in the mirror, amen? Life comes together, thankfully, however, post-mistake, and we have what's known as a teachable moment. We can have a learning experience, or you might say gain an expensive lesson in life. This morning, we're going to dive back into Philippians 1. We're going to continue our study of Acts chapter 9 and see learning people and ask and answer the question, indeed, who makes us holy? And see how it is that our God works to make us and the ones we know holy. See how God works outside the boxes of our understanding and see how God gets us out of our messes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your truth that's in your word. As we study, as we talk, as we think about your goodness this day, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the letter to the Philippians must have caused quite a stir in the church. Imagine you're sitting in church. It's been a number of years since Paul has been with you and you get the first of his letters hand-delivered to you. The words of Paul from prison, words that will guide your future. When you read the first few words of Philippians 1, he calls you a saint, and you likely smile being called a saint of God. A little bit after that, he calls you a partner in ministry, and your heart probably warms to think that you're a partner with Paul in ministry. You're glad to know that he keeps you in his prayers. But now he starts to talk to them about his desires for them. And we are going to focus on verse 10 this morning. It's going to be the subject of our focus today. Read it with me again, if you will. I want you always to see clearly the difference between right and wrong. 
I want you always to see clearly the difference between right and wrong. Why does Paul phrase it this way? How is it lived out in his experience in Acts chapter 9? How is it lived out in his ministry partner's experience in Acts chapter 9, Ananias, who we'll be talking about today? And how is this lived out in God's holy people today? Paul wanted the church to be holy in Philippi. He writes them a letter and sends a messenger with the letter to town. The messenger's name is Epaphroditus. And in verse 10, he gives the pathway to choose rightly. He says, if we see clearly what's right and what's wrong, everything will be fine. Writing to a Greek audience there in Philippi, he's writing right up their alley of thinking. This is the basis for Greek morality and thinking. It's the basis for the average school teacher's hopes in the classroom. Socrates and Plato, they formed the basis for Greek moral thinking. And their basic thought was, if you know what the right thing to do is, you'll do it. If you don't know what the right thing to do is, you won't do it. If you're doing the wrong thing, they assume you must not be thinking or you must not have ever learned what the right thing to do is. Plato wrote a famous book called The Republic, a book I loved in high school, by the way. And the book, in the book The Republic, he basically hypothesizes that if you put a group of people on a deserted island and you have leaders leading them who really know what the right thing to do is, you'll have a perfect society there. Now, I'll tell you, this kind of thinking dominates my theology and way of looking at the world. If we clearly know what God wants, we will do what God wants. Ignorance is the enemy. Not knowing is the devil's playground. This also forms the basis of school discipline policy and, like I say, the hopes of the teachers. You hope after the 17th time you've explained to the student what the right thing to do is, they'll go, oh, that's the right thing to do, and everything will be fine. In my school, I teach the Oak Hill Owls, and so we have little owl's feet in the hallway. And if you're, going, uh, if you're going this way in the hall, you've got little green feet to follow. If you're going this way in the hall, you've got little blue feet to follow. Because if you know the right thing to do, that's the way you'll go. I had an interesting version of this happen in my life near the end of this last school year. As we got near the end of this last school year, my boss, my principal, who's great, she says, Jim, there are two rooms in the quad. I want you to empty them and move them into the school. Now, is a request from the boss. I always say yes to my boss. And I thought, well, this is another fine mess you've gotten yourself into by willing, be willing to always say yes. Because in these rooms were approximately, I don't know, a thousand books, all kinds of boxes, all kinds of heavy things, all kinds of awkward things. Well, it turns out I did it in one day, in about three and a half hours, with five different crews of eight to 10 third and fourth graders working with me because they love to move stuff. And as we moved the things, my biggest fear was students hurting themselves, right? My fellow teachers worried about me hurting myself and I was worried about them hurting themselves. And so when we would get to something that was heavy, it would look like this. Two, 
That is my way to tell them that two people needed to pick up that box. If one student tried to pick it up themselves and I heard an oof, as in this is another fine mess I've got myself into, I'd simply say two again. And they'd fix it and have two of them. If it was a heavier box, I would move to a corner, I'd bend my knees, show good lifting technique, demonstrate that I'm gonna grab the corner and lift, and I'd say four. Now, the students did not need all the science explained about the ergonomics of lifting something. They didn't need a long list of warnings of all the injuries that were potential, in which case I probably would have lost all of them from the health team. But I knew they could do it based on my life experiences, and they discovered they could do it based on their life experience of doing it. They just needed to know the right thing to do, two or four, and it helped along the way. It's easy to know the right thing to do on many a specific task we hit in our lives. And our daily walk in the complex world, however, it's not always so clear. Circumstances change. People surprise us. Conflicts arise in our hearts. And we find ourselves in the situation we think, is this my mess that I've created? Or is God leading me in a surprising way and trying to teach me something new? Paul knew this experience of trying to know what the right thing to do was and hoping he would do the right thing. Paul lived an example of God making things happen in a way that really surprised him. And Luke wrote about it in the book of Acts. So we're gonna do some more story of the um, conversion of Paul in the book of Acts. We're gonna look today at Acts chapter nine, verses 10 through 16. I love to hear your voices. You'll see some of the print is white, some of it is yellow. I'll take the white. I'll invite you to say the yellow as we read through these seven verses together. Luke writes in the book of Acts, now there was in Damascus a believer named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. And the Lord said, go over to Straight Street and find the house of a man named Judas and ask there for Paul of Tarsus. Now remember, we talked last week about how Paul was on his way to Damascus to go and kill Christians and God blinded him and had him led to a house with Paul not knowing what was coming next. We go on. I have shown him in a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he can see again. I have heard about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And we hear that he has arrest warrants with him from the chief priests, authorizing him to arrest every believer in Damascus. For Paul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the nations and before kings. And I will show him how much Now, as we explore this passage, we're not gonna focus on Paul. This is the middle of Paul's conversion. We'll talk about that some more in three weeks. But Ananias goes to him and shares good news. And we're gonna focus on the conversion of Ananias. And to Ananias, God said, 
Go and do what I say. Say it with me. Go and do what I say. We're going to see how Ananias following that, in that God makes his heart pure and ready to go, and God gets him ready to go and do what God says. And as we do this, we're going to go back to our verse, chapter, our verse 10 of our text in Philippians. You might remember that Paul says, I want you to be inwardly clean, knowing what is right and what is wrong. I want you to see clearly the difference between the right and the wrong, and I want you to be inwardly clean. That word inwardly clean in the Greek is hylocrinus. And hylocrinus has two different ways it can be interpreted, which I think inform our study about how we can know what the right and wrong is in our life. The word hylocrinus can come from the words isla and crinin, which means to shine the light and it will be clean. Have any of you ever shown the light in your house and seen how much dust there is there? Right? We can relate to that, right? Light shows us clearly what needs to be cleaned. The word hylocrinus can also come from the root word eileen, which means to swirl in a sieve, kind of like you do with pasta water when you're getting ready to make spaghetti. And when you swirl things in a sieve, though, the impurities remain in the sieve and the clean moves on. Both of these can apply to Ananias' experience here with Paul. The name Ananias means God has been gracious. God gives him the royal privilege of seeing what's right and what's wrong. God gives him the royal privilege here of having his heart turned. And he says, go and talk to this guy you've heard all the bad things about. And Ananias reacts like a lot of us would have said, do you know what you're saying to me, Lord? This is another fine mess you're about to get me into. But then God asks Ananias essentially the question, do I not work with the people I want to work with? And might not I be making Paul inwardly clean as well? Do you think, Ananias, that you're the only one that I'm shining my light on these days? And he also basically says, look, I'm swirling things up. Don't you want to celebrate with me over this man who's coming back to God rather than questioning his past? We know God shines the light on the good and the bad. We know that God's good rain falls on every person's life. And we see in this story, God even works in the life of one who is doing evil named Paul. God even works in the life of those who are maybe objecting or dragging their feet about going God's way, Ananias. And God is even working in our lives when we're laying on the floor, having bumped our head on a lamp, missing a button, and asking ourselves, how did I get into this mess. Ananias is told to go on straight street to Saul. Now, at this point, the action gets kind of exciting. Straight street is an east-west street that runs through Damascus. When Paul would have been going, it would likely have looked like an art fair today would look, where all these tents are set up and various kinds of people are selling things, and probably people were calling out to him to try to get him to buy things while he moved along the way. 
His heart is likely racing. You can see his mind swirling with questions. Did I really hear God's voice telling me to do this? Is this really God's light shining my path forward? But he presses on. God has brought him this far. He's not going to be abandoned now. God saved him. Why couldn't God save Saul? Ananias had made mistakes, and he was fully loved by God. Why couldn't Saul be fully loved by God? God has spoken to Ananias' heart in a wonderful way that warmed him and changed him. Why couldn't God be doing this to Saul as well? God made him his chosen child. Why not Saul? Did Ananias really believe God was in the mix? We're going to see in the next sermon in three weeks that he does, because when he meets Saul, he calls him Brother Saul. But for today, let us rejoice, my friends, that indeed God picks us up and makes us holy. Let us be the people who rejoice that God shines light into our lives and is shining his light into the lives of those we'll meet through us. God shows us what is right. God shows us our wrongs and he leads us into the light. Let us thank God for the swirled messes that come up in our lives that point us to him. Even messes we have made ourselves can be redemptive if we turn our eyes back to God as a result of it. When we're laying on the floor, having knocked over a lamp, if you will, God can still bring us home. And let us treat the people we meet this week the same way God does. People into whose lives God's light is shining. People who are being called toward the same reality we live in. Those who are being called to know they in two are desired by God to be chosen. Holy people of God through his grace alone. And all God's children said, amen.